Ashley Devilbot has been to hell and back. We're going to talk to her about her story. You're going to listen the next hour. I promise you that. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. Tonight's guest is Ashley Devilbot. And some of you may remember Ashley. Um, in 2008, she was accused of murdering her infant daughter. She was convicted of that crime, served 12 years in Georgia penitentiaries. Then the Georgia Supreme Court vacated the guilty verdicts against Ashley and her husband, Albert Devilbot. And earlier this year, the district attorney here in Muskogee County said he was not going to retry the cases. Ashley is now a free woman, and we were talking. She is now on the National Registry of Exonerations. Ashley, thanks for coming in tonight. You're welcome, Chuck. You're welcome. Um, I, I met you under. I met you during the happiest point of this whole ordeal, when you were in the court, and that night, that day, when you, when y'all had the hearing and where the whole case was over you know i asked you to be on this podcast and you said you would consider it and to your word you you email you texted me about last week and said you were ready to do it and you know let's go back to may the 29th of 2008 that was the day mckenzie was born what do you i mean Talk about it. I mean, talk about what you felt as a newborn mom. Oh, my gosh. I can't even put into words the feeling of being a new mom, especially because she was planned. Um, Oh, my gosh. I remember we went to the doctor the day before. Because um, I was having some complications. You were mili- Your husband was mm-hmm. military at the time, mm-hmm. and you were you had been military. Mm-hmm. So y'all were using military medicine, right? Exactly. Um, Martin Army. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We were. Um, we were actually at the doctor at Martin Army the day before on the twenty eighth because I was having some complications, and um, we they told us I had dilated some. Which I was like, okay, that means that we're almost there. Um, got home that night, and I was having some pain. I didn't know what it was. Couldn't find out it was Braxton Hicks, but it was actually me going into labor. Um, I was hurting, <laughs> I know, a lot before I even woke my husband up. And I finally woke him up, and he woke up, and I was like, I think the baby's coming. And we, of course, called the hospital. They told us it wasn't ready for me to come because it was too soon. But um, we thought we kept watch out on the extra contractions. As soon as they were close enough to go, we packed everything up and left. And you were living in South Columbus at the yes. time, mm-hmm. but you went back on post mm-hmm. to have the baby at Martin Army. Yes. So Kenzie's born. Everything appears good, yes. right? It, I mean, at least as I knew. I'm just, you know, I'm not in the medical field, so I just assumed everything was okay. So you brought her home. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Um, we were home maybe roughly 11 to 13 hours or so. Um, I remember going to bed, putting her to bed, um, and waking up. Waking up to me and my husband kind of both 
stern in the bed. I don't know what was going on, but we just woke up. And I looked over there at her, and then she started stirring. So we got her up and decided to go ahead and feed her. Um, we took turns feeding her. That was like our little schedule. Yeah. I feed her, he feeds her. And um, I started fixing the bottle, and I noticed a lump on her head. And I pulled it up off her cap, and I, we called the doctor. And th- at that point, y'all went back to Martin Army, right? Well, the initial call wasn't. Um, was they told us that she might have had jaundice or uh-huh. something because she was biracial. And I was like, well, she doesn't look yellow. You know, I know a little bit of something, but um, we called right back maybe a minute uh-huh. later and said we're bringing her in because she looked like she was having trouble breathing. Uh-huh. We left the house in a disarray our bed, as far as our bedroom goes. Yeah. And we just wanted to get there. And... And then Mackenzie did not, I mean, when she y'all. She didn't make it. She didn't make it. But not, and like, we ran in. I had her in my hands and said, please help my baby. Something's wrong. They went to working on her. We left our cell phones at home. We were just that in a rush to get her there. So you to, knew something wasn't right. Something wasn't right. As a person, as a mom, you just know something wasn't right. Um, she wasn't and you've breathing been a mom right. for three days. Only right? three days. Wow. So did she pass away at Martin Army? She did a few hours later. She okay. did. Um, they called the chaplain up to see us, the, the installation chaplain, and he was there with us, and they came in and told us she passed. The highest of highs and the lowest of lows in a matter of, you know, three days. You know, seven, you know, I mean, at that point, what were you thinking? I was just on top of the world. Newlywed, new baby. And in that moment, I feel like the whole world was on top of me. I was in denial, for sure. I was thinking when he came in and said she was gone, I was like, no way. No way I just had a baby. And she's not here anymore. So my mind frame was, they're lying, that she was still alive. When did that turn? When did that turn into a police investigation? To be honest, we didn't expect it to. You know, you don't. We didn't expect so you left, being blank. you left post and you, you had no idea that anybody was saying y'all did anything wrong as parents or y'all may have killed the child. No, sir. Um, we were there grieving and, you know, trying to figure out what was next, what to do next. And the Columbus police showed up at the hospital at Martin Army. Yes. And that's when I started thinking, like, what are they here for? But my husband, you know, he was like, well, that's probably proper protocol because it was a death. And I was thinking like, well, yeah, maybe, you know, it just didn't seem plausible to me because we're grieving. And um, then the type of questions, it was just, it didn't sit right with me. What were the questions that the police were asking you and and Albert that night? Just about the way the, the house was, the turn of event, like how the events happened. Just like I kind of ran through them for you. Um, Nothing about the hospital stay, though. It was just mainly about when we got home. Um, And all I could tell them was the truth. Well, she looked fine to us, and she she looked okay. 
we assumed she was okay. We didn't think anything beyond that she wasn't okay because we're not in the medical field. So, um, and then we had to go do some statements, and that's when it kind of got a little real for me because I was thinking, were, what do they need statements for? At that point, you realized that they thought you did they it. They thought we did it. What goes through your head? I mean, when when you realize somebody's accusing you of the most heinous of crimes, killing your child. I was in disbelief. I, I didn't know what to think. I thought it was like a bad dream. <laughs> I remember talking to my mom, and I said, Mom, I think they think we did this. And she was like, well, I don't think so. I said, that's what... Albert's saying, I said, but it's just the way they're acting towards us. I said, they're not treating us like a couple that just lost their child. It was adversarial. They're treating us like we did this. And so was it adversarial then, or was it, is, is that the right way to say it? I really wouldn't know, Chuck. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I may get that answer a few times in the, over the next 45 minutes. Um, so you are now a suspect, and Albert's a suspect. How long were y'all suspects before you were arrested? I would say a half a day, to be honest with you, because we got home on the 1st, which was the day she passed away. That was June 1st. June 1st. Of 2008. We went home, and we were doing what any couple would do in grief. Family started coming over. My mom made it from Mississippi finally, and people started coming by, you know, bringing food. You know, um, we started trying to make the arrangements, trying to figure out what next. We just didn't. That's what you do when somebody passes away. You know, you start to think about what to do next. We were kind of all over the place with it because we just didn't understand what just happened to us. And y'all were 22 and 23 years old at the time, right? Yes. I think I had just turned 24 because okay. I was born on my birthday's in May. Okay. Um, I think I just had a birthday before my daughter was born. Okay. So um, they called us that morning and said they want us to come to the government center. No, no, no. Police station. The police station at 1300 for the reading of the preliminary autopsy results. And we went. My mom was there with us. I walked in that day on June the 2nd at around 1300, 1330-ish, free, and I never walked out. They arrested you in the room at the spot. Same thing for Albert? Well, they interrogated us for a while. And mind you, I'm post-pregnancy, I am hemorrhaging because of the baby being born, and they're interrogating me of killing my daughter for hours. Describe that interrogation. I remember being called a monster. (laughs) I remember being so belittled that you start to believe that you did something because they make you feel like you're worth nothing. I've never been talked to that way until that interrogation. And I kept telling them the same thing over and over and over again. But the worst part about it was because I'm still 
suffering from the effects of having a child. And all they cared about was interrogating me for hours. And I think this is a fair question. You didn't do anything or did you do anything to Mackenzie that could have caused her death? I didn't do anything and neither did Albert. But the police thought you did. They were convinced because of the autopsy, the initial findings, that it was blunt force trauma that caused the bump, right? Mm -hmm. And no extra investigations were done. It was just, here it goes. And something that has always kind of been left out of things, CID got involved. The military military police. Yes, they came to the house that day when I willingly gave them authorization to come to our townhouse to take pictures. I didn't hide anything from them. They didn't have a warrant or anything. They asked me, can they go to the house to take pictures? And I said, sure. So you let CID in. That's and the military the Col- investigation. CID and the Columbus Police Department came. I didn't have anything to hide. I didn't say you have to have a warrant. I didn't say where's your where your paperwork is. I didn't say anything. I said, sure, because we don't have anything to hide. And the CID Do you detective. Wish you had handled that part of this initially differently with an attorney and with because you had rights. I mean, you had rights. You know, you didn't have to talk to them. I mean, you could have invoked your Fifth Amendment rights. Did you feel like by not talking to them, you would have looked guilty? Is that sort of what was going through your head? To be honest with you, Chuck, no. I just, I've never been in any trouble. I've never had a speeding ticket. I thought that's what you do. They ask you a question, you answer it. They wanted to go. I said, sure. Now, after being a part of the system, I definitely would have said I need to have an attorney present. But I didn't think anything was wrong. I mean, I was naive to the system because I've never been in trouble. So I didn't think anything was wrong with saying, hey, yeah, we can go to the apartment so you can take pictures. But I know the CID detective said before he left, he spoke to us, he said, we don't see any crime here. We don't see anything happen here. There's no evidence that anything happened. So if the CID was over the investigation, it would have been dropped at that point. But But they weren't because it happened. Columbus had jurisdiction. So you're arrested on the afternoon, evening of Mm -hmm. June 2nd. That's a four-day swing of emotions that most of us can't even imagine. Have a child, lose a child, be accused of killing that child, arrested and in jail. I mean, how do you explain that to to those of us who will have never, will probably will never experience that? How do you explain that range of emotions? You go from everything from sad, angry, upset, happy because I had a baby, um, confusion, anxiety, anxiety kicked in. It's it's a place where you don't know what to feel. It's an emotional roller coaster. That sounds like a cliche, but I I'm, that's probably the only way to describe it. It right? is because one point I was happy, I was blessed, I was excited. I'm a mom. I'm in front of your mom. I'm a mommy. <laughs> and then I go to devastation, then confusion, then to grief, which, what is grief, you know? 
you know how many times I was told because I didn't initially cry that I was guilty? But what is the right or wrong way to grieve? But according to them, I was wrong because I didn't cry. I was in denial. Who is them? The police department, the detectives that were there. So in part of that interrogation, they were saying that because you weren't showing what they mm-hmm. considered normal signs of grief, that, you know, let me ask you, I'm going to jump ahead, but I'm coming back. Mm-hmm. But this seems like the right time to ask this question. Did you ever get a chance to grieve Mackenzie's death? No, and I still haven't. Because at this point, Chuck, I've decided not to deal with death or grief. I've had, I've taken it and put it on a shelf. And I don't know how to deal with it because it makes me think that my way of grieving is wrong. I talk about this with my therapist every other week when it comes to grief. Because I was told that it was wrong. I had to learn during incarceration in a grief and loss group that I took that there's no right or wrong way to grieve. But for years, I thought, because that's what they thought, I was wrong because I didn't grieve the way they thought was normal. So you're saying grief is like a fingerprint. We all have, we all have different fingerprints. We all grieve differently. We all grieve differently. And just because you don't grieve the way I grieve doesn't mean that I'm wrong or you're right. Because everybody analyzes grief in their own way. And I've still not dealt with it. I have family members that were really close to me to pass away while I was incarcerated. And I didn't even know how to cry because I just put it on the shelf. And that's where it stays. I don't deal with death on any level at this point. None. I just don't. I've chosen not to deal with it. So I haven't even decided to heal or to grieve because I don't know how to. They have me to a point where I don't know how to. So y'all didn't bury, I mean, obviously y'all were in jail, so Mm -hmm. you couldn't have done a normal burial. So Mackenzie was cremated, right? Mm -hmm. What'd you do with the ashes? My mom has had her this whole time. Um, She kept her in the original container they sent her, Uh sent it. She never opened it up. She always said, that'll be your time to do that. So the day I was released on bond, my mom sent her ashes to Georgia so I can have them. And that's the first thing I received when I walked out was her ashes. They say, here's your daughter. My friend came. She said, here's your daughter. And I broke. So you cried then. That's the first time I've held her since the day when she was alive. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean. I feel like her soul was sitting in my hands. You know, I'm not even sure where to go now um, because you're being brutally honest. And, you know, my conversations with you, I figured you would be. Let's talk quickly about the Columbus court system. So you've dealt with the PD. They've So you ended up in Superior Court in front of Doug Pullen. Doug Pullen was a judge. He has since passed. Uh, you and Albert had different attorneys. Um. There was some evidence that there were some people that thought that this might have been a, something that happened at birth. But that evidence never got presented. Why? Well, according to my knowledge of what happened, um, 
Dr. Plunkett had looked over the case for and, my attorney. And he was and he, and he was willing to testify that whatever did happen was accidental for sure, not intentional. Now, he wasn't able to look more into the actual records because he wasn't given time to, but he was willing to come on record to say that much. However, when my attorney let the court system know that, when he could come, the trial was scheduled the week before when he couldn't come. Um, from what I know the knowledge of, I guess. The court stayed with the original schedule. Mm -hmm. They didn't change it. They didn't the trial. change it because um, Albert's attorney filed for a fast and speedy trial. So it was, I guess they work on that time level. I really can't say, but that's the way I understood it. Did they you, scheduled it the week before he could come. And it seems to me like that was a big part that could have helped the situation when it came to us. Did you think that obviously you sat there believing the police had made a mistake, a very bad mistake in the arrest and the charges? Did you think the justice system was going to clean up that mistake? I did, because I've always believed in it. There's no way I wouldn't believe in it. I was one of those people that believed that the justice system worked. If you were in prison, it's because you did something. You know, I don't, I don't know the logistics of people's cases and situations, but I always just assumed that it worked. The justice system works. It's here to protect us. Why wouldn't it work? I want to be able to know that if I'm out there alone driving in a parking lot, that the law will protect me. I don't have those same feelings anymore. <laughs> you don't think the law protected you and Albert in this case? No, I don't. Why do you say that? I mean, obviously, I mean, it was the law. It was 12 years later. It was the law that. that Correct. <laughs> that, that, that reversed Correct. the trial court decision. And, you know. I'm not here to beat up the law or to, you know, that's not because I understand we need order because then the world will be in chaos. So I, I want order. I'm an ex-military person. I crave order and discipline and structure. That's something that the world needs. I think at this point, the system let me down. They let me down as a law-abiding citizen that did everything I could to do the right thing. They let me down at a time where they could have done the right thing. And I just think things need to be worked on within the system. Like, bring awareness to what's not happening to assist people in situations like this. You said in that trial, what did you think when the jury came back with guilty I mean, what what went through your head when the judge read that when that when that verdict was read in that courtroom? I can't say what went through my head, but I remember crying so hard. Like I felt so heavy. I felt so burdened in that moment. I just cried and cried cuz I really thought you tell the truth. My word is everything. Only thing that I have. You just said it yourself. You asked me to be on your podcast. And I said, not right now, but I'll let you know. And you did. My word is all I have. And if that's not being believed, then what do you have then? And I know people, because I had to understand this too, Chuck, being incarcerated, that everybody in prison wasn't innocent. I had to realize that really quick. 
But it also made me realize that if I'm in here and if Albert is in here, how many more people like us are incarcerated in this country wrongfully? You say when, and, and that's a good question. I'll get to it in just a second. But you I mean, I mean, clearly the Innocence Project's have shown that, and you were certainly the beneficiary of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. But you just said something that is interesting to me. You didn't cry when McKenzie was dead, died, but you did cry when the verdict came out. How do you explain that dichotomy there? Initially, I didn't believe she was gone. I told you I was in denial. My mind frame was, okay. let me get my her baby bag together and take her home. I even when I got home that night. I so went you to refused room. to accept. The I truth. refused to accept that she was gone. I didn't. I didn't want to believe it. I even got home that night, went to her room, and started folding her clothes, getting her ready to come to her crib. So you went into a total state of denial, complete denial. But then there was no denying what happened in that in Judge Pullen's courtroom because it was reality right there. So you were, what, 15 months in the Muskogee County Jail? Is that about right? I spent 19 before I was sent to prison. 19 months in Muskogee County Jail. Then they sent you to Georgia State Penitentiary, to to the Georgia Department of Corrections. December 16, 2009. There's just certain times that you will never forget in your life. (laughs) I mean, they put you in a van and drove you to where, Atlanta? Mm -hmm. Metro State Prison, diagnostics facility which also housed general population as well. I was the only person sent that day that was shackled from the waist and the legs and the hands. Every other female that went with me were just handcuffed together at the hand. They wanted to make sure that I was set aside, that they knew when I got there that I'm convicted of murder. Murdering your child. That's what they wanted them to know, is when I got off the van, oh, she's the one. Or she's a high-risk crime. Because everybody else was just at the hands. That's it. So I already felt separate just because of that, going into diagnostics. And, you know, obviously you've been incarcerated for 19 months, but jail and prison are two very different things, aren't they? Very much so, Chuck. Very much so. I would say jail is more chaotic. There's no control. Those officers don't have any control of those offenders in there. It's just none. It's filthy. It's nasty. It's it's a, they it's so inhumane the way you have to live in there. And people don't know because they only see the bottom floor. But to go on those floors. And the filth that you're subjected to just because of the title inmate. The minute you are put on that screen and your mugshot come across, the world looks at you totally different from that point forward. Because in jail, y'all have TV. They were TVs Mm -hmm. in jail. Your case got a tremendous amount of media coverage. Mm -hmm. So... You're sitting in jail, and everybody else is sort of sitting there and seeing, there's the mama that's the baby killer. Actually, um, 
what they do have in place in the county jail is when you have certain crimes, they put you to yourself. So back then in Muskogee County Jail, I was put in the um, lockdown IPC, which is involuntary protective custody. Essentially isolation. Because people were threatening me before I got there. And the officers, uh, I guess, let them know. Because of the nature of mm -hmm. your crime. So I was put in the isolation cell, but not by myself, with another lady. Um, Was my very first roommate. And um, she was older. So she was very maternal. What was she accused of? Um, Do you remember? I know she had a manslaughter charge. But, and I actually wound up seeing her in prison later on when I got to a certain prison. But um, she, I didn't even care about the crime that she was charged with. I didn't look into it. I wasn't one of those people that people, most people in prison and jail, they want to know what you're there for. I was the one who wasn't like that. I don't care what you're here for. They say I did something. They say you did something. At this point, no crime is any worse than the next. I'm trying to fight to get out. I don't know what you're trying to do, but I don't care what your charges are at this point. So when you got on that van and headed to Metro State Prison, you were still trying to figure out how is the world going to know I didn't do this, right? Exactly. How would they know that I'm innocent? Because everybody, when they get locked up, Chuck, they say they're innocent, especially of the accusation. And I call it an accusation. That's what it was, especially of the accusation that me and I were charged with. Everybody I met in prison with the charges I had were all innocent. And I kept thinking, but I really am. Like, I really am, y'all. And I'm going to prove it because I'm not going to give up fighting. So when your freedom is gone, you're fighting f- to regain that freedom. How do you prove it? Well. <laughs> you found a way, obviously. Away kind of found me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, away found me. Um, are, you, he, are you? Are you? Are you a person of faith? I am. I was going to say, like, I don't know if you're what's spiritual, but I was raised in the church. And you were raised where? Mrs. Laurel, Mississippi. So you're a Mississippi girl. I'm a Mississippi girl. Um, my grandmother raised us to the letter of that Bible. My big mama, that's what we call her, was a lady of strong faith. And she passed that faith on to us. And a way found me. God, when I, I feel like when I got so tired of suffering and being in there, a way found me, which was through Jocelyn Lee. And jo- tell us who Jocelyn Lee. Jocelyn Lee is my angel in disguise, y'all. <laughs> she wrote me a letter one day, out the blue. I got the letter one morning and it just said, Hey, the very first line said, I believe that you and your husband are innocent and I want to help. I was floored, like, who is this lady? How long have you been how long have you been in prison when I you want to say twenty twelve when I when I met her. Two thousand and twelve. Had so been you, in prison since two thousand nine. So the, the, the ordeal was well into four years. Did you have any idea that Jocelyn was capable of helping you? I didn't know, but because when I read the letter she was so informative, like she had already started researching things and seeing how she can help. And it was the first glimmer of hope that I've had in years. And she was with the Wisconsin Innocence Project, right? Actually, no. She was just a stay-at-home mom with three kids who was into advocating for the wrongfully convicted. And she helped me find where did the she Wisconsin live? Where did she live? She lives in Atlanta. So she, it was a Georgia case, and, mm-hmm. and so she did her homework mm-hmm. on your case 
before she ever wrote you that mm-hmm. letter. Did you think the letter was false hope? Initially, I was scared. I called my mom that night, and I read the letter to her. And my mom told me this. My mom said, Ashley, you've already been kicked down as far as you can go. There's nowhere to go from here but up. What's the worst she can tell you? What's the worst that can happen? You've already been given a life sentence for nothing. You write her back. I wrote her back. And we started corresponding. Then I gave her the emailing system we have for the prison. She got on my email. Then she started coming to visit me. And things started taking off. <laughs> life sentence with or without the possibility of parole? With parole. Okay. So you, you were in for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, before you had your first parole hearing. 2038, I would have been 54 years old. Say that again. 2038 was my parole year. And I would have been 54 years old if I wouldn't have never fought. That's 17 years into the future. So Jocelyn starts fighting for How did y'all find the Wisconsin Innocence Project? And what, I know there's a Georgia Innocence Project, mm-hmm. and they have done some incredible work across the state. But how did y'all get hooked up with the guys in Wisconsin? Well, Jocelyn knew some, some connections from what I remember. She was trying to find innocence projects that help with child cases yep. like this. Um, and Wisconsin she came across her radar through, I think, her own advocacy connections. And then I talked to Jocelyn. I talked to Wisconsin Innocence Project. They actually gave, they called me at the prison I was at. And they sent me a packet to fill out. And Jocelyn sent them everything she had, and they took the case. Did you tell Albert that this was going on at the time? Or I wrote him and told him. My so you, were, communicate, you mm-hmm. were communicating with your husband. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to write each other um, if you're an immediate family when you're incarcerated in the prison, in the DOC. Let's, let's deal with this real quick um, piece of that. Are you and Albert still together? Right now, no. We have decided to separate. Um, there's a lot of reasons behind it, but the main reasons are we had just lost our daughter. A piece of us had just passed away, and we were only married seven months before the state decided to take our freedom. So now we've lost each other. The only other piece that we can have to hold us together after losing our daughter. So over years of not only trying to hold a marriage together, but trying to fight for our freedom. After everything was said and done, it just kind of took a toll on everything. But we're still friends, and we still talk, and... um. We're in a great place, but that's. You're free. That's what happened. Wow. I don't blame the state, but I blame the the situations that led to what happened surrounding around the state. I mean, a lot of people after losing a child sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, lose the marriage in the process. But, you know, I mean, y'all never really had a chance. Then to, had a chance to work that out. Because you were in different places. But he was an awesome husband. And he was going to be an incredible father if Mackenzie would have stayed. Would have would have still been alive. Because he was great just with the time of me being pregnant and the days that we did have her. So, Wow. So Wisconsin, Wisconsin Innocence Project entered the picture when? I want to say, don't correct, don't don't judge me on this, but I want to say maybe it was 2015-ish, maybe a little bit before that, because I know I met Jocelyn in 2012. 
don't shoot me on the actual year, but I was okay. thinking it was maybe 2015. And? Maybe 20, maybe a year after that or so. I can't remember. They got it back in court in front of Judge Art Smith. They did. And he upheld, I, I mean, th- this is off of the um, thing. On mm-hmm. December 12, 2017, Smith denied the motion for a new trial. His three-page order offered a little evidence in the way of explanation, but said the evidence offered by the defendants failed to reach the threshold of, of admissibility. So you were back. To where, and then what I'm reading, just so people know, this is the National Registry of Exonerations, and this is probably the best, just detailed account of what Ashley and Albert Devilbot went. It was written by Ken Otterborg. Um, I think I've said that right, Ken. I hope I have. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a it it was not posted until May of this year, and it's a really really detailed thing. But Judge Smith, so you were back in the same legal spot you were in because, but the appeal levels now were opened up. You were able to send the case back through the system for appeals, right? Correct. So that's what Smith's order, Judge Smith's order, did, and then. On March the 13th, 2019, the Georgia Supreme Court upheld the conviction and sent the case back to Muskogee County for further review. The justice says there was significant evidence to sustain the convictions, but then sharply criticized Smith for the order's fakeness. Well, when it got back down here, things changed, right? In what way? Well, the way I understand it, knowledge-wise, when the Supreme Court got the case first and they sent it back when they, it was like they have vacated and they didn't have vacated. They remanded it back to the state because they wanted, they wanted judge Smith to say why he denied it. He didn't give any reason specifically why, and and they wanted the specific reasons on why. That's what they wanted it for. And Mr. Otterberg writes, on two months later, on May 6, 2019, Judge Smith again denied a motion for a new trial. His ruling stated the verdict was not contrary to the evidence. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the Supreme Court. um, And on February the 28th, um, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, uh, 2020, the Georgia Supreme Court um, uh, vacated just before COVID hit us, um, vacated their convictions. It did not rule whether the attorneys were ineffective for failing to present expert testimony, but said they were ineffective in failing to object to Daly. That was one of the lawyers in the misstatement of the law during the closing arguments when she told jurors that they didn't have to be 51% certain to convict the couple. So Georgia Supreme Court throws it out. I mean, all of a sudden, you're not the state. You're not. You're not a prisoner. I mean, you don't, you're not convicted of anything. You told me a minute ago you've never had a speeding ticket, so it wasn't like they're going to come back and hold you on another <laughs> warrant, right? No. <laughs> yeah, I've never had a speed ticket. <laughs> I mean, so so when what did you think when the Supreme Court's in February 2020? I mean, obviously now things are happening quickly. Yes. Um, the crazy thing is I I didn't find out till the day after. So the 21st. I found out on the 29th. Oh. That was a leap year. Oh, okay. It was. Okay. I found out on the 29th. Um, 
I always call my mom Chuck on Fridays and Sundays. I always did. That Friday, I didn't call her. I was tired. I don't remember what was going on. I was a facilitator at Pulaski State Prison, so I taught classes all day long. And I was just tired, I believe. And I didn't call her till Saturday afternoon instead, which was the 29th of February. When I called my mom, I said, Mom, you know, how's you doing? She was like, have you talked to anybody? I was like, no. She said, you didn't talk to your lawyers? I was like, no. She said, you sure? I was like, Mom, what? And she said, well, you're... Decision came back, and my heart dropped. And I said, what is it, Mom? And she said, you won. They overturned everything. I immediately dropped the phone. It looks like a pay phone. I don't know if you, <laughs> the inmate phone's in prison. And I just started screaming. Everybody in the day room watching TV, everybody looking back, they think somebody done died. They don't know what has happened. They don't know what kind of information I just got on the phone. And I just started screaming and crying. And just screaming and crying some more. I left my mom on the phone, ran down the hallway to one of my good friends. And I just fell on her and I said, they overturned it. We won. And then she started crying and everybody's like, what's wrong with Ashley? Is she okay? And then they found out and they started crying. Then they started praying, praying and praising God for the miracle. And I said, well, could somebody go tell my mom I'll call her back? My next action was I closed my door and I locked it. And I went to my bed and I got on my knees. And I started praying and thanking God. And I just cried for like at least an hour. That was my initial. Then I went and called my mom back and said, okay. And then how long before they let you out of jail, prison and brought you back here? Well, the thing with that, Chuck, was COVID hit. <laughs> COVID went rampant. <laughs> And they stopped transfers because of COVID. Now, there was, I guess, a time frame where they have like 20 days or something to make up uh, to appeal it or whatever from the state level. I'm not for sure if I'm saying it right. But COVID hit and they stopped transfers. So I had to wait. Um, eventually, I kept going to my warden and saying, have you heard anything? And have you heard? She was like, no, but you know, this thing with COVID, by I mean, May. This, this was the height of the storm. Like, I'm thinking. What's COVID? <laughs> I don't care about no COVID right now. Y'all need to get me back to the county jail. Well, one of my friends that was actually incarcerated with me, um, her name is Nicole Harrison. I called her and I said, something's not right. There's no way this is June. By this time now, Chuck, it's June. And I'm still sitting here. Somebody has dropped the ball on paperwork. She made one phone call and found out that the, they never sent my paperwork. The Muscogee County Sheriff Department had never sent my paperwork to the Department of Corrections, so they can issue me a release date. So I called her that afternoon. She said they faxed it over right then. They said it'd be within 72 hours. Gosh, dog, it, 72 hours. That was a Monday. Friday, I was gone. Back to Columbus? Back to Columbus. Were you in shackles? And I was, but I didn't care about those shackles at that moment, Chuck. I'm not even going to lie to you. <laughs> I was like, this was the beginning of the end. I walked through those doors, and the staff, even the officers, were happy. They were like, we heard. Congratulations. The Muscogee County officers. Yes. Uh -huh. So you weren't the prototypical inmate. No. I mean, you were saying something before we started talking that that you had a lot of guards, administrators in prison and jail. So what are you doing here? I mean, is yeah, that true? Is they that were confused. And it was all because of how I carried myself. 
how I carried myself. I didn't, I didn't, there was no need to change. This is who I am. And I just went in there with Ashley. The only thing I think changed for me was I had to harden myself in a lot of ways where I was so bubbly and happy-go-lucky. What happened to me kind of hardened my spirit at times. Understandable. So you get back here, and how long did you stay in jail before they bonded you out? Maybe two and a half weeks. Um, I got June so, 12th. I so was sent back to the county jail. I got out July 2nd, so a few weeks. July 2nd, you walked out of the jail on bond, but still knowing you could face those murder charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, July 12th would have been right after the district attorney was beaten. I mean, literally a day or two after no, no, a month after the district attorney was beat. Mm-hmm. So what did you think? I mean, what was your thought process at that point? Was, hey, I've got to go back to trial now. I mean, did you think you were going to stand trial again for the murder of McKenzie? You want me to be completely honest? Oh, I mean, you, you're pretty. Because <laughs> you, I'm pretty honest. Um, no, I didn't. Spiritually, I didn't feel like I was. I'm so, just being honest. So you thought you were going to drop the charges? That's what I prayed for. Um, you're either going to have faith or you're not. Like, it's either yes or no. And if I've already prayed for the miracle of getting it vacated, then why couldn't God do this for me? And by this point, COVID, you know, you had the COVID issues in prison and the stuff. COVID had pretty much shut down the courts. It did. I mean, the courts were the courts were literally in peanut butter. They weren't going anywhere. That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> peanut <laughs> yeah. butter. Yeah, I mean, they were just they were they were they were they were they were stopped, and so go back to earlier this year, and I want to get the right, the date right. I'm sure it's in here. Okay. What was the what was the day? You know the dates way better than I do. What was the date that you and Albert appeared in um, Superior Court and District Attorney and then Mark, or, or current District Attorney Mark Jones announced to the court he was not going to seek the retry y'all that it was over. April thirteenth, two thousand twenty one. You had a lot of people from Wisconsin that were down here, weren't there? They were. I had a lot of people from Wisconsin, from my friend, my battle buddy from the Army came from Indiana. My family came from Mississippi. I had a friend that I was incarcerated with who came from North Carolina. I was covering it that day, and that was the day that I met you. And I've never seen the celebratory nature of what was happening in that hallway in that courthouse that way before. I mean, why? it was a huge celebration for your freedom, right? But, you know, still at the core of it, you've got McKenzie gone. I mean, there had to be, there had to be some tug and pull there. Definitely. Um, my family and friends and loved ones, they were very, very supportive. Don't get me wrong. All they saw was she's free. It's over. For me, I didn't see it that way. I walked back to my, I got back to my apartment, and all I thought was, my daughter's not here. Mackenzie's not here. And she'd have been 13 years old at that point. She would have turned 13 May. 
okay. she was 12. Um, and I speak like she is, like she was 12. Yeah. <laughs> she she t- would have turned 13. I, mean, I can imagine that's um, the way you have to look at this. But that's what I was feeling. And that's where the support I couldn't reach out to my family, friends, and loved ones for. And that's where the emotional pain started to hit me. Because now they were physical support, but they had no idea how to support me with this. With understanding when I say my freedom's back, but my daughter's gone. My freedom's back, but 12 years of my life is gone. My freedom's back, but I had to start over from scratch, from having nothing. My freedom's back, but the nightmares are still there from the first day I was arrested. The nightmares are still there from sitting in court and going back and forth. The nightmares are still there from sitting in prison and wondering if I will ever see the light of day again. So now I'm dealing with the emotional PTSD of it where my family, friends, and loved ones are just like, she's free. It's over. So that's been a tug and pull there. Will it ever be over? I don't feel like it will, be honest with you, Chuck. I find myself learning something differently about the effects of what has happened. Hence the reason why it takes me a minute to want to talk about it at times. Because I just got tired of talking about it. I had people reaching out to me for a month. Hey, I just seen you. Are you okay? I'm so happy for you. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. You know, I don't want to talk about it anymore. But now's the time to use my voice as a beacon, but not to berate the law. That's not what I'm here for. This is just to raise awareness to situations like this. What? Thirteen years later, you're free. You didn't serve till 30, 2038. What do you say to those Columbus police officers that still think you did it? There are people that still think you did this. I don't know what to say to them, but I do want them to know that I realized that you were just doing your job. At first, I looked at it like it was personal, like you were personally attacking me. But after doing time and meeting officers along the way, that it really is just a job. And you were doing what you thought was right at the time that you thought was right. I just hope that after it's all said and done that you see me. You see me and Albert. You don't see what you thought or the, what's on paper. You see the real people. And the real people, Albert and Ashley, have been the same through this whole juncture. We've never changed We've never been rude or irate to the staff, to the law, to the officers. We've always upheld the most respect for them at all costs. And I'm hoping that they see that. I can't change the world and make the whole world think that we're innocent. And that's not my job, too, to be honest with you. Chuck, if I did that every, if I thought about that every day, I'd be talking Losing my breath trying to tell people that I'm innocent. Well, and that brings me to a point. I heard a guy say one day when he was interviewing for a job, he told the folks interviewing him, hey, I got a Google problem. You've got a Google problem now. Definitely. I mean, <laughs> Definitely. I mean you, you Google. I mean, do you monitor what's, what's being said and written about you out there? I do. I actually Google myself every couple of weeks just to see what's new. Um, just to see what's been added positive. I really don't care about the negative. To be honest with you, after you've done time for something that you haven't done, 
and I've been called names in prison. Um, you learned that you're not those names. I'm not what you call me. I'm not defined by the word inmate. I'm not defined by the word offender. I'm not defined by 1,149.03, which was my GDC number. And what, I'm not. Def- what was your What was your Department of Corrections number? 1,149.03. How many and, How many days did you Were you in there? Do you know the day The day amount? No, but I know my jail number was nine four two three six five six. Like, will you remember those like other people remember phone numbers? I will. Because before a long time, that was what I was, what you're known as. When you go somewhere, it's, what is your GDC number? What is your GDC number? They don't want to know your name. They don't even care about your last name. What is your number? You become a number to the system. And I'm just not defined by that number. I'm Ashley. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, you, you're... You you are working with an author to write your memoirs right now, aren't you? I am. My um, my trial attorney, that would have been my trial attorney, Andrew, he helped me get with a book coach to kind of help me get started on writing my memoirs. So I'm working on that. I am. And I'm hoping to have it done within the next year. Where do you start with your story? If you're, I mean, I'm a writer. And if I'm writing your story, I don't know where to start. Where do you start with your story? To be honest, um, (laughs) I've been told recently by actually my producer for the documentary. He sent me a book by Stephen King, and it's on writing. And how Stephen King puts it is, don't edit anything. You just start writing. You just start. And I did. I started with the letter. Of course, I'm not going to give it away, <laughs> but I started with receiving the letter from Jocelyn. And then I'm going to, of course, go back in time and tell my life story. But um, that's a good place to start because that was the turning point for my life changing for the better. Receiving that letter from Jocelyn Lee. Well, good not to start there. <laughs> so, so between the memoir and the documentary, you fully intend to tell your story. Correct. That's why you're here tonight. You want to tell your story. You know, it's interesting because I wasn't sure when I brought you into our newsroom how to introduce you. I mean, you know, because, you know, I I mean, and I'm sure that a lot of people kind of share the questions or even the discomfort sometimes. I mean, how how do you battle that? Um... To be honest with you, Chuck, I haven't met one person since I've been released for sure that has thought anything of me but great things because I introduced them to me. They know the situation and they actually sympathize with me. They, of course, they can't have empathy, but they do sympathize with me on every level. And they're just like wanting to know what can they do to help. So the, the few people, the few people that are out there who are totally against me being free or think that I'm still guilty. I can't worry about you. I have a life to live and I'm going to live my best life. (laughs) Let's fast forward 17 years. What do you think your life will be like in 2038 when you, when, when you would have been released, you know, potentially on on parole, on parole? Um, what do you hope your life? Let me ask this better. I'm gonna ask this better. I asked okay. it clunkily. Um, what do you hope 
your life looks like in 2038? I'll be 54 years old. I'm hoping that Mackenzie's voice, because right now that's what me and Albert have to be for our daughter. We are her voice now. I'm hoping that her voice by that time will have helped other newborns and that she can change the way the health system is when it comes to birth, labor and delivery. That's what I want. I want my voice to be heard in a way that it has changed the world. I want Mackenzie's, her death is not going to be in vain. I want people to get to know her because this isn't just Albert and our story. This is Mackenzie's story as well. And you have Ashley, Albert, and Mackenzie Doublebot. And I just hope that what we have to give, that it can help all around, not just the healthcare system, but the law as well. And maybe people will start seeing things in a different light versus, well, if, it's, if we see it being told, if it's on the newspaper, if it's in the newspaper, or if it's on the news per se, that you got to remember that there's a story behind everything. There's always a story behind everything. You, 95% of the people, I'm going to say this. I was reading in prison once and was a judge that was sentencing another judge for mishandling government funds. And this judge told the DA who wanted to give this judge 30 years. That judge said, I'm not giving her 30 years. And he was like, and you want to know why? We lock people up for 30 years that we're afraid of. I'm not, we're not afraid of her. It was a misuse of government funds. 98% of the people incarcerated, Chuck, they're in there because the system was mad at them. It has nothing to do with them being afraid of them. Because if that's the case, then we would have been afraid of them as well in there yeah. with them. So, no, you're not af- you don't lock people up for 30 years that you're per- that only if you're afraid of them, not because of things like that. So that's we're getting toward the end of the hour. I want to ask one more question. I hope this may be a, a difficult question, but you're still young enough. Do you think you will ever have another child? Um, I thought about it, and I do want more kids. I'm not going to lie. I do want more kids. But I just know when the time is right, then I'll be blessed to have more kids. But I do. I know I am getting older. Um, but you're still well within childbearing years. I am. And yeah. I do want more kids. I'm, I love kids. I recently, I love my nieces and nephews like they're my own. And whenever I am home and I'm around my family, I'm always hanging out with the kids. Mm-hmm. I wanted kids. I wanted Mackenzie. And even though she's no longer here, I feel like she's even at peace now because everything's okay. This has been, I mean, we could go another two hours, <laughs> but I think, you know, I appreciate your candidness. I mean, I've done this with every other guest and we'll do it here. And uh, um, one thing I do at the end of the show is I turn the tables and they'll be very interesting to see what happens here. I turn the tables and I allow the person who I'm interviewing to ask me a question. And I've been talking to you and asking you questions for an hour now. Anything you want to ask me, Ashley? I do. Okay, this this <laughs> okay. Go. Um when you first heard our story, 
did you, what was your initial reactions? What was your initial feelings? Do you have kids? I do. Okay. So I want you to think as and a father. Gran- and grandkids. Think as a father and a grandfather. What was your initial reaction of the accusations against Albert and I? You use the word once, and and I'm going to be brutally honest with you. You used the word that that you said came out in the interrogation. I thought monster. I mean, that was the initial thought. And because, you know, I, I cover enough stuff, particularly courts and crime, that I see, I'll admit it, I'll be the first to admit it, at times... Veteran reporters like me with 40 years' experience get jaded. It's just, I mean, cops get jaded, lawyers get jaded, soldiers get jaded when you see some of what you see. And that was my initial thing. But I knew when I saw you and Albert in that courtroom in April that something wasn't adding up, something, you know, I read the Wisconsin Innocence Project work, and, you know, my initial reaction is not the same one I have now by a long shot. Does that answer your question? It does. It's a, that's the toughest question I'll ever get asked. <laughs> doing this. You know, I mean, but, you know, you've been honest with me. I owed you honesty. And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not even against that because I understand. Um, but I'm learning now not to judge a book by somebody else's cover. Well, you know, I've hit a point in my career, and I'll just say this, and I think what you're saying is absolutely right. You can't judge a book by the cover. And you can't judge everything by one court proceeding, one crime scene, one, you know, thing. I mean, but I've hit a point now where I can't cover child cases very well because they're so difficult to process. And, you know, you were... I can imagine. They're difficult to process. They're, I mean... A few years back, I covered an incest case, and I walked out and said, I'll never do it again. I was just like, I'm not going to do that. And I can't imagine your situation being a defendant in a case where you clearly are saying, I didn't do this. And you're being accused of one of the worst things you can do. Yeah. I walked around that prison initially with my head held down for weeks when I first got the diagnostics. For weeks, because I felt so ashamed. And nobody knew my charges, because it's prison. But I felt so ashamed. Until my oldest brother said, I called him, and he said, Ashley, you pick your head up. He said, you pick your head up. He said, because the fight is just beginning. He said, you know you didn't do anything, and you know your husband didn't. He said, so pick your head up and fight. I never held it down. I never held it down again. And you will fight and continue to fight to get this story out for weeks, months, and years to come, right? Mm-hmm. I will. Now it's time to use my voice. And like I said, it's not to be berate the system. I don't not mad at Muskogee County. I said that during the press conference. Yep. I said I don't hold any bitterness. I'm not a bitter person. But I want them to see me. See Ashley. This is the Ashley that's been standing in front of y'all. For 12 years, you refused to see her on your own. But now, here I am. So, Well, I mean, Dylan Hanson, our director, and I've been sitting here, and we've seen you. I mean, we've gotten to see you in a very 
real and different. This is even different from, you know, the April court date and the news conference afterwards. Well, our guest has been Ashley Doublebot, and Ashley is uh, um, is rebuilding her life in Columbus, Georgia. Um, after serving 12 years in prison for a crime, she st- sternly maintains she never did. And you've just heard her story. Um, now we'll go to the end and kind of get get out of here but this has been the chuck williams show and you can watch the chuck williams show on wrbl.com live stream tuesdays from seven to eight you can also catch it on uh podcast on spotify apple what else am i missing dylan i heart i heart our podcast and i think those they're starting to get some views and we got a 25 26 uh um episodes up now so if you, you can listen to that if you, you listen to this one one listen you listened to the podcast last week to sort of I see did, what you <laughs> just to see what i had to expect <laughs> uh and then also you can get me on social media obviously chuck william at chuck williams for twitter chuck williams wrbl for facebook and chuck williams 0999 on uh, instagram um and this show is about conversations, and we just had one hell of a conversation with Ashley Devilbot. Thanks for listening, and I hope to hear have you back next week for the Chuck Williams Show.